This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Hello, everybody, and welcome. Uh, I'm Wynne Burkle. I'm a director of the Office of Congressional Relations for the Rand Corporation here in D.C. Um, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the briefing today on the future of the Terrorism Risk Insurance Act. Uh, expiration, reauthorization, or modification. Just a moment about the program. Uh, should TRIA be reauthorized? Uh, since, the, since TRIA was last reauthorized in 07, terrorism insurance has remained widely available, and the price has fallen, but underlying economic and, uh, and insurance challenges remain. Program set to expire at the end of December, so it's unclear whether improvements in the market that we've seen since TRIA was first passed in 02 can be sustained without TRIA. So today you'll hear from a panel of RAND experts who will present their findings of the recent work on this topic and address the different facets of this complex issues, including pros and cons of proposed TRIA modifications. About the panelists, <coughs> immediately uh, to my left, your right, our moderator today, Lloyd Dixon is director of the RAND Center for Catastrophic <coughs> Risk Management and Compensation. He's a senior economist at the RAND Corporation. Um, and his expertise includes insurance, compensation, and liability issues. Um, I'm going out of order here. Far this to my left, uh, Michael Dworsky is an associate economist uh, at RAND. His primary research interests are disability policy, health economics, labor economics, and the economics of insurance. Um, uh, Tom uh, LaTourette, who is third from my, from my left, uh, is a senior physical scientist at RAND. Uh, specializing in energy, public safety, and homeland security policy. Um, and lastly, but not leastly, um, is uh, to second to my left, uh, Henry Willis is director of the RAND Homeland Security and Defense Center and a professor at the Party RAND uh, Graduate School. Uh, with that, let me turn it over to Lloyd. Take it away, Lloyd. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, pleasure to be here. Glad we have such a good turnout. Um, um, just uh, to say a few words about introduction and we'll have a kind of a discussion with our panelists about the work uh, that they've done and uh, very much want this to be an interactive uh, uh, conversation with you all. So first, uh, uh, the, I'm the director of the Center for Catastrophic Risk Management and Compensation at RAND and it was founded about one year ago and the center seeks to um, identify laws, programs, and institutions that can reduce the adverse social and e economic <coughs> consequences of uh, natural and man-made catastrophes. And we do work in a number of different areas, uh, but one of the areas uh, that we've been focusing on, uh, uh, given the current um, interest and in, in focus on TRIA, is the Terrorism, Terrorism Risk Insurance Act. So let me just give a, I'm sure many in this people, in this, uh, many people in this room have uh, know TRIA well, but let me just say a few things on uh, the um, background about TRIA. So go back to 9-11, the 9-11 uh, terrorist attacks, and if you look at that, you'd find that um, about one half of the losses from those attacks uh, were covered by insurance. Okay, so that's a, a large percentage of the, of, of the losses that were caused by those attacks. But after, uh, after the attacks, as, as when alluded to, insurers uh, began, uh, began to exclude terrorism coverage from insurance policies. Uh, terrorism, risk, uh, terrorism insurance quickly became uh, unavailable or hard to find, and if you could find it, it was uh, very expensive. Okay, so why was this a problem? Uh, that was a problem for two reasons. One, there was concern that that would uh, reduce economic activity, that uh, developers who wanted to finance uh, a new building, uh, con new construction, would not be able to uh, find the required insurance, uh, reducing economic activity. And second, uh, it raised the question of what would happen should another attack occur. You know, if, if there wasn't a lot of insurance, who was going to uh, bear those uh, losses? Was it going to be the taxpayers or uh, the, the businesses and individuals affected by the attack uh, who didn't have insurance? So Congress passed, uh, as, a, as a consequence, Congress passed TRIA at the end of 2002, and it's a public-private partnership uh, between the insurance industry and the federal government that allows the terrorism uh, to, to provide a backstop for the terrorism uh, insurance market. Uh, one of the key features of the attack uh, I'm sorry, one of the key features of the program is that insured, uh, the losses from very large attacks are spread across the country, um, both to, uh, to policyholders nationwide, and we'll talk about that uh, in a minute, for very large attacks, and then for the largest attacks, uh, taxpayers will, uh, will, uh, will, will pay some of the losses. Now, the program was temporary, 
and been reauthorized twice uh, and is up for reauthorization uh, this year. Uh, so the question arises, uh, uh, what, what, uh, what, uh, what's the appropriate role of government in the terrorism insurance market? Um, some argue that TRIA is a giveaway to the insurance industry, a government subsidy, um, that the government should not meddle in the uh, terrorism insurance market, and that government involvement only impedes the uh, development of a robust uh, private market. Others argue that the, the particular features of, of, uh, of the terrorism risk make it very difficult for uh, insurance markets, private insurance markets, to provide terrorism coverage. Uh, they argue that without TRIA, we'd return to a, a world like after, like in 2002, after 9-11, that there would be, uh, the terrorism insurance would be high cost, reduced availability, and that would uh, affect economic activity, and that uh, as a result of, of, and that also the government would be on the hook for a lot of the uninsured losses post-event should the terrorism uh, risk insurance market uh, uh, fall apart. So what we've done, uh, we've, we, we were very involved in uh, providing research and analysis for both the 2005 and the 2007 reauthorizations. Uh, for uh, this uh, uh, round of uh, reauthorizations, we thought we could make a contribution by doing three different policy briefs. And you either have the briefs or have uh, summaries of them in your packet. I'll, I'll briefly describe them. Uh, the first brief uh, is by Henry Willis and Omar al-Shahiri and examines the national security implications of allowing TRIA to expire. So what special considerations should we think about uh, from a national security <coughs> perspective uh, when, we think about, when we think about TRIA? Uh, the second uh, uh, brief by Misha Dworsky and me explores the effect of TRIA on the workers' comp insurance markets. And as Misha will discuss uh, later, workers' comp insurance has particular features that uh, require uh, or that uh, warrant uh, a special attention when thinking about uh, uh, TRIA and the effects of TRIA. And the third brief by Tom LaTourette uh, and Noreen Clancy uh, considers the cost of terrorism tax to taxpayers uh, with and without TRIA. So uh, what is the uh, cost of a, of a large terrorist event to taxpayers if TRIA is in place versus if TRIA is not in place? Uh, we feel these, these three policy briefs uh, uh, address particular issues uh, that uh, members of Congress and uh, stakeholders should be aware of as they consider uh, how to move forward with, with TRIA. Okay, so with that, with, uh, by that of introduction, uh, we'll move to uh, um, a discussion. And uh, it's really uh, meant to be kind of a panel discussion format and uh, with uh, questions from you uh, and, and give and take. So I think we'll start it off by um, asking Henry um, in his work looking at uh, the terrorism threat and also how uh, the insurance industry is trying to understand and model this threat is what progress there has been made in modeling terrorism. When Congress set up the law in 2002, there was a hope that the insurance industry would be able to develop the tools and models enabled to enable them to uh, ensure terrorism. And the question is, uh, what progress has been made on this important uh, aspect of, uh, of, of, uh, of, of the market? Okay. Thank you, Lloyd. So as you said, um, when TRIA was set up, there was the country was faced with what was perceived as a new threat and a threat that was pretty uncertain. But now we're 12 years later, and the question is being raised now, have we learned enough about terrorism that we sh are in a position where we can now model this threat in a way that can support a private insurance industry? And the answer to that is we have learned a lot, but we still can't model what we haven't seen. And that's important. And let me tell you a little bit about the approaches that have been used to explain why we concluded that especially two approaches that have been used to model terrorism risk. One I refer to as the historical approach. It's more actuarial. It's trying to look at the record of attacks that have occurred in the U.S., attacks that have occurred overseas, and from that try to understand what do we think the frequency of attacks might be and if they were to occur, what the consequences would be. And we do actually do have a record and, and we've collected data on this. The trouble is all we've really seen since the September 11th attacks in the U.S. has been simpler attacks using conventional bombs or firearms. And that doesn't represent the full range of concerns people have about terrorism or attacks that could happen. Now, there's other approaches that have been used to try to model a broader set of terrorism. I call this predictive modeling, where we try to understand what are the terrorist groups that exist around the world, which of those might have intentions to try to attack the U.S., and what ways might they try and do they have the capability? 
the trouble with the, these approaches is that when inspected, when looked to see if they're validated, they haven't been able to pass that test. In fact, a, one particular review was one done by the U.S. National Academies of Science that looked across all the, the risk analysis that was done by the Department of Homeland Security and judged that none of it had been tested or validated. So we're left in a condition where we do have a lot of information, but for really important aspects of this terrorism threat, we cannot model it. However, there is one aspect of TRIA that helps the industry cope with this, and I'll put up a slide here to illustrate this. Uh, what we've done in this slide is we've used one of the models that is used by the insurance industry to estimate the consequences of a range of attacks. So they're sort of shown as the columns there. And I've differentiated with the colors what I'll refer to as conventional versus unconventional attacks. So the gray bars are those attacks that are basically bombs, firearms, and the red are, as you can see, things like nuclear attacks, radiological, biological attacks. One thing that obviously bumps out is that these unconventional attacks we'd expect to be much larger in scale. It turns out there's one provision of the law, the industry aggregate retention threshold, which I've just put up on the slide there, that says that if the losses don't exceed $27.5 billion, then the taxpayer ultimately is not on the hook because of recoupment. And this measure of the, law, of the act actually segregates somewhat those risks that we're starting to get more information about the conventional terrorism and, and may soon or in the future be able to manage from those that we really don't have an ability to model. And so that's, you know, as, as I said, we have learned more, but we can't model what we haven't seen. But there are some ways the law, the act can be used to help the industry cope with this. Okay, good. Um, all right, thanks, Henry. Um, well, now let's, um, the, the uh, second issue we wanted to uh, bring up is uh, to ask Tom a question. If there were a large terrorist attack, how would taxpayer outlays, outlays differ with versus without TRIA? So with TRIA in place, what do taxpayer outlays, lo outlays look like when you consider all types of outlays uh, versus if TRIA expires, uh, what uh, would taxpayer outlay, outlays? And Tom's analysis has done a comparison of, 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 that, um, of that question. All right. Thanks, Lloyd. So TRIA has a potential to influence federal spending in sort of two ways. One is, is through the program itself. As uh, the previous speakers alluded to, the risk spreading formula is such that the first layer is paid by the insurance industry. The next layer is paid by commercial policyholders nationwide. And then beyond what's known as the industry aggregate retention, the taxpayers also contribute to the risk-sharing formula. So after uh, $27.5 billion in insured loss, the taxpayers are on the hook to share some of the losses. So that's one component of federal spending through the TRIA program. That's, that's the TRIA program spending itself. The other component is a, is a little more subtle, and that is TRIA's support for a functioning insurance market, without which, or with the degradation of which, um, there would be less insurance coverage, and there is the possibility that the federal government would be on the hook to pay more in disaster assistance. And I'll walk you through that, bring us back to both those components, and show you the, the sort of net effect on federal spending. So the, the logic of the latter, the disaster assistance argument is that if TRIA were to go away, uh, all the industry surveys indicate that most of the major, uh, most of the insurers would stop offering terrorism coverage. We, in effect, revert to that period between 9/11 and when TRIA was enacted. They would they would exclude terrorism insurance and they wouldn't be offering it. And as a result, um, the the take up that is the amount of insurance coverage out there for terrorism is expected to drop uh, quite dramatically. If that happens, and then we suffer a terrorism attack. Um, there would be a much higher fraction of the losses would go uninsured were TRIA not in place than would be the case if TRIA was in place. And with a higher fraction of uninsured losses, this raises the question of, well, where, what's the source of compensation for this bump up in, in uninsured losses? And it turns out that um, the expectation of the drop in take-up is, is large enough that the uninsured loss in, in say, a $25 billion attack could go up by about $5 billion or something like that. So this is a big effect if, if take-up does drop to the extent that the industry expects. So we're, we're expecting to see a, a much a, a, 
a large decrease in insurance coverage, a much greater demand on the federal government for federal disaster assistance. We spend a lot of money every year on federal disaster assistance, something like $15 billion every year. And the amount changes from year to year, having to do with the size of the attack. It responds to large attacks. We spend a lot more on large attacks, uh, excuse me, large disasters than, um, than smaller ones. And so then the question is, does this um, federal disaster assistance, it clearly responds to the size of the disaster. Does it also respond to changes in specifically in uninsured losses? And that we looked at in our analysis, and I'll show you here, this is showing the relationship between uninsured losses in natural disasters in the U.S. Uh, as a function of, uh, or as relationship to total federal disaster assistance spending. And what we see is that there's a clear positive correlation. And, and the, the correlation shows us that for every about $1 increase in uninsured losses associated with another dollar increase in federal disaster assistance. Now there's a lot of scatter in this plot, obviously, and, I, and I'll show you the effect of that scatter um, in a second. But what this tells us then is if TRIA goes away and if take-up drops, as the insurance industry expects, and we suffer an attack, demand for federal disaster assistance could go up dramatically. And so then this final slide just combines those two effects. So uh, what I'm showing here is the difference in federal spending with and without TRIA. So in the upper half of the panel, federal spending is greater with TRIA, and in the lower half, federal spending is, is less with TRIA or equivalently more without TRIA. And the red line shows the first effect I was just talking about. Um, for the, for the uh, total losses below the industry aggregate retention amount, the federal government's not involved ultimately in paying losses. After the retention uh, of the recoupment, um, all the losses are covered by the insurance industry and commercial policyholders. And it's not until uh, losses exceed a certain point that the federal government starts spending. That's the red curve. That's federal spending with, through the TRIA program. The other component is this green curve, and that's the savings in disaster assistance spending. That is, the greater the loss, the more savings we have in disaster assistance with TRIA in place compared to the case where TRIA not in place. And the blue curve is simply the sum of those two. And that shows us the net effect of TRIA on federal spending. And what this shows us is that for losses up to uh, about $50 billion in total, total losses, w the federal government would actually be spending less with TRIA in place than it would be were TRIA uh, eliminated. Now, I'll add that the scatter broadens that out a little bit, and I just want to make sure everyone understands this is not a precise business. That, that green field accounts for the scatter in the previous plot I showed you, and that translates to the blue field. So this crossover point is somewhere between 40 and $60 billion. That is, for a tax less than about $40 billion, the savings in disaster assistance spending dominates the overall federal spending picture. For a tax greater than this, the TRIA program spending becomes the dominant factor, and we end up spending more with TRIA in place. And the interesting point is that, that the lower end of this bound, this $40 billion, just happens to coincide pretty closely with um, the 9-11 losses when corrected for current dollars. And so what this tells us, I think, is that uh, for any kind of terrorist attack up to and including anything we've ever experienced before, um, the federal government will probably end up spending less if we've got TRIA in place than if we don't. And it's only for losses that exceed that amount where the federal government would start paying more with TRIA in place. Okay, so the question is, um, what effect would um, dramatically change TRIA program have on these conclusions? Um, some of the changes would have no effect. I think a lot of the, the proposed changes have to do with the distribution between insurers and commercial policyholders. Ultimately, the federal government's role has to do with how much the retention amount is, so that's, um, that's a big number there. So the, the, the industry aggregate retention amount is, is the, sort of the key parameter that would influence these numbers, and that would move that crossover point up or down. Yeah, and I, I'd also um, add to that um, mm -hmm. that uh, the key will be how the changes in TRIA affect the take-up rate for, as you suggested, the take-up rate and the availability of, of terrorism coverage uh, to the extent that uh, changes are, are such that um, 
uh, terrorism coverage becomes much more expensive and less available, you'd expect um, take up to fall, and um, then uh, you'd uh, you'd see the um, the the um, the effects would uh, diminish as, uh, as as that happened. So that's a that's a good yeah. So one way to think about changes in tree is always think about what's going to be the effect in the end on the market as far as the price and availability of coverage and and uh, how the changes in the program would would affect that. Yeah. In your consideration uh, of uninsured losses, if you look specifically at what either the expiration or major changes in TRIA would mean for the DHS Safety Act program. I, I did not. Um, that's an interesting question. There are a lot of forms of disaster assistance um, and, and that affect, the, uh, well, there's a lot of factors that affect uninsured loss, and there's a whole bunch of different forms of disaster assistance. And we had we looked at the aggregate. We we weren't able to, to to build it up from the bottom up and look at the individual pieces. It's an interesting question, though. Anybody else? Um, well, let me. Uh, I'll uh, I'll ask another one. Um, you know, so this result, this analysis says that for um, you know the. Uh, many attacks that are less than a certain size, roughly 9-11 size attacks, uh, that uh, taxpayers would save money. The TRIA saves money, uh, uh, taxpayers money. Uh, but for the very large attacks, um, uh, TRIA would, would cost taxpayers money. So how do you think about that trade-off that, uh, you know, for some attacks, for a, a large number of attacks perhaps, uh, TRIA saves money, but for some it doesn't? What, you know, any uh, kind of thinking of how, um, you know, we should uh, frame that? Well, I mean, it's... Certainly, the, the larger the attack, the less the likelihood, the, less, the lower the probability. So in the current setup, it's far, far more likely that we're going to end up in the, the region to the, to the left of that crossover point. Um, so I think that the way it's set up is um, putting the vast majority of the responsibility on the insurance market and commercial policyholders nationwide. And it's only in the very extreme cases, which uh, are much less likely, no one knows how much less likely, but certainly the extreme cases and in, in particular beyond what we've experienced before where the federal government would, would be playing a role. Um, and, and that's, you know, in qualitatively that's by design. That's, I, that's the idea. Just to reinforce that point, if you think back to our, our ability to model this risk, that it's those larger attacks where we actually don't perhaps know enough to be able to have a functioning private market, and that could also perhaps justify the federal role in, in that part of the insurance industry. Right. Yeah. Um, most of this is dominated by the recoupment after the fact in terms of net federal spending, and the curves is, is assuming just the mandatory recoupment, not the discretionary, the possibility of the president or secretary of the treasury recoup some more. That, that's absolutely right. This is assuming only the mandatory recoupment. If, if the treasurer, Treasury chooses to recoup more, that would bring that red line down and to the right. Yeah. And so it would bring the blue line down and to the right as well. I think part of the reason we did that is uh, concern that after an event there would be a lot of uh, pressure and, you know, perhaps reasonably so not to do a lot of recruitment over the mandatory amount because the nation needs to be recovering from, uh, from the event. Okay, anything um, else on, on, uh, on the taxpayer uh, aspects? Yeah, we thought this was an important um, uh, thing to uh, emphasize in the uh, reauthorization discussions because too often the, the uh, federal spending is siloed. Okay, well, you got spending through the program, but you know, you got to think about all the uh, indirect consequences and how those would funnel through the different types of programs that uh, are in place or will be reauthorized uh, authorized after, an, uh, after an event. Yeah. Um, no, no, it doesn't include that. We did, we, as I said, we tried to, to aggregate up all the different kinds of um, federal spending, and in the end, we had to use an aggregate estimate of federal disaster assistance that um, compiled primarily, the vast majority of which is through post-disaster um, supplemental appropriations bills. Okay, uh, let's uh, change gears a little bit. Um, and, uh, you know, when we think we have lots of different kinds of catastrophes in the United States. Uh, we have flood, we have earthquake, we have tornadoes, we have uh, uh, wind insurance, wind, wind uh, hurricanes. 
um, and terrorism. Uh, but terrorism uh, has a different component, and there's sort of a na there's a national security aspect to it. There's a, you know we're under attack by uh, uh, forces, and and so the question is to Henry. How does that uh, additional aspect of, 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 of th this threat uh, affect, and, and how does TRIA affect our resilience and, and, uh, to, that, uh, to that risk? Thank you, Lloyd. The, yes, the, um, you know, as Tom pointed out, for very extreme attacks, there would be higher costs. And I think a reasonable question to ask is what benefits do we get for that? And some have made claims that it helps bolster our national security. And so when I think about trying to test those claims and understand them, I put in the, in the, con the framework that's often used in Homeland Security about thinking about national security for terrorism. That is, can we prevent attacks? Can we prepare for attacks? And does it help us respond and recover for attacks? And there have been claims made that TRIA uh, supports national security in all those ways. So we stepped back in our work and tried to understand what's the logic behind those claims, and is there any evidence that suggests we should believe the claim or, or not believe the claim? And so just very quickly, in, in terms of the prevent side of the, the, the claim that some have made that having TRIA in place deters terrorists from attacking us. And the, the root of this claim is statements by al-Qaeda leaders that we need to hit the U.S. economy, and if TRIA helps support the U.S. economy, then this would deter. And, and we don't see that as a very strong claim, because while a, a strong claim that TRIA would deter terrorism, because while, yes, al-Qaeda leadership has made those claims, when you look at the history of terrorism, it seems that the motivation of attacks and the tactical plan of attacks is about causing fear by creating large body counts, not by actually targeting things that would affect the U.S. economy at its, at its greatest. On the second of those there's been claims made in terms of preparation. There's been claims made that if we can better price terrorism security risks and provide a signal to uh, the industry, then they'll in fact make better, more efficient decisions about security measures. And in theory, that's right. That's exactly how insurance works in other sectors. The, the, in practice, that I don't believe that works in terrorism security because we don't understand the actual effectiveness of security. If we've looked back at studying counterterrorism security in other contexts in Israel, in the IRA, in the IRA campaigns, there's sometimes when you increase security that, in fact, you do deter terrorists and cause them to want to attack you somewhere else. There's other times when you get exactly the opposite effect, that seeing the security, your adversary becomes more uh, motivated to attack you and in even worse ways, so you can increase the risk. Plus. The, the effect of security changes over time. Usually in our experience with IED campaigns in Iraq shows that we put security in place and it works for a while and then fades as new attack measures. So the answer to that in, in, in preparation, in theory, yes. In practice, no. The final, though, is, is I think perhaps the most important one. In terms of response and recovery, the, the idea here would be that by having insurance, does it help communities bounce back quicker? And does that lessen the overall risks from terrorism? And if I could have just the clicker. We, we thought about this when we think about a world with TRIA and a world without. We can look at so essentially what uptake rates are today. And with the result has been that the, the perception is that insurance is relatively well available and uptake rates are, are very good. And then in that under those conditions, if an attack were to happen, those who are insured would understand what compensation they can expect, that those payments would be made relatively quick, quickly, there'd be less litigation about in, in, um, in discussions about how much would be compensated, and businesses could go forth and plan based on those assumptions, helping communities recover. If, on the other hand, if TRIO were to expire and under those conditions, insurance would become less available and uptake would drop, we would not expect to be able to have these these benefits of TRIA in place, and that could lead to lower community resilience. Yeah, and again, I think as uh, Lisa's point uh, made, um, uh, you know, the key thing is, whoops, I don't have my microphone. The key thing is uh, how um, the program affects those take-up rates and the cost and availability, and to the extent that you have more uh, insured losses, you would affect these, um, uh, the loss, more of the losses are insured, you'd affect these, expect these effects to be greater. Mm -hmm. 
All right. Well, let's uh, let's turn to the workers' comp market. And uh, usually in the debate over TRIA, um, uh, the focus seems to be on property, uh, the property aspects, property insurance. Uh, but one of the TRIA lines is workers' comp, and uh, uh, the TRIA has, because of the special features of workers' compensation, it's important to look at the effect of TRIA in those markets. And uh, Misha has done some work that allows us to examine what would be some of the consequences in the workers' comp market if if TRIA were to expire, and, and that. Uh, and that um, you know part of that program um, uh, disappear. Thanks, Lloyd. <sighs> Great. So, so as Lloyd mentioned, uh, a lot of the debate over TRIA is really focused on property, uh, which is reasonable because uh, terrorism coverage in property is something that has to be purchased in addition to an ordinary property policy. And workers' comp has very unique institutional settings, the statutory cover where the terms are basically defined by state workers' comp laws. And the statutory nature of workers' comp means that insurance companies really don't have very much flexibility to limit their exposure to terrorism risk in the, in the same way that they do in property and other tree lines. Um, and in particular, I mentioned that in property, uh, terrorism coverage has to be purchased separately uh, or in addition to the underlying uh, ordinary property policy. Then workers' comp, uh, to the extent that workers' comp covers terrorism losses, uh, an employer, that, that is to say a policyholder, would never make a choice about whether to purchase terrorism coverage or not. Workers' comp policies have to cover all the risks that are defined as work-related injuries and illnesses by the state's workers' comp statute. So what that means is that if you're an insurance company and you want to reduce your exposure to terrorism losses on your workers' comp book, you can't keep selling workers' comp and exclude terrorism or impose policy limits on terrorism. You essentially have to resort to limiting your exposure through underwriting, which is to say declining coverage to employers that present a high risk of catastrophic terrorism losses. Um, now, we went through some details of a uh, scenario in which that might be possible in the policy brief, and in particular, uh, whether or not there will be reductions in workers' comp capacity really depends on the response to private reinsurance markets, uh, which are difficult to predict and which we didn't examine in detail in this policy brief. But if the private reinsurance markets aren't able to fully replace the capacity that's provided by TRIA, for spreading risk uh, away from individual insurance companies, we think it's very realistic that insurers would reduce the amount of workers' comp capacity they provide to high-risk areas like Washington, D.C., New York, uh, San Francisco, and also to large employers who have a large number of workers concentrated in one location and therefore present the possibility of catastrophic workers' comp losses from a single attack. Now, Another really important feature of workers' comp that's going to make the market dynamic different from what you might see in property is that workers' comp coverage is mandatory. So businesses don't, apart from, uh, no, apart from property developers who might need terrorism coverage to secure financing, uh, most businesses don't need to purchase terrorism coverage. But almost all employers, except for some in Texas, in the U.S., need to purchase workers' comp coverage in order to comply with labor laws. And if private capacity provided to workers' comp markets drops, those employers who are shut out of the private market because of terrorism risk will have to get their coverage somewhere else. And they'll have to turn to markets of last resort, which in workers' comp are known as residual markets. Now, residual market institutions differ state by state, but in general, there are some immediate drawbacks uh, and immediate economic costs that would be incurred by migration of terrorism risk to residual markets. And that's principally because in a lot of jurisdictions, residual market policies are more expensive than the coverage that an employer might be able to obtain uh, in the ordinary private workers' comp market. Now, another consequence that you would see from the migration of terrorism risk to residual markets, one that we explore in detail in the second half of the policy brief, is how that change in the workers' comp markets would affect the financing of losses from terrorism after a large attack. 
Now, again, the details of this vary state by state. That's generally true uh, whenever you talk about workers' comp. It's a system of 50 state programs plus the district. Um, but with TRIA in place, catastrophic losses from a large attack are going to be spread across the country uh, either through recoupment on policyholders up to the mandatory recoupment threshold or potentially uh, through federal tax revenues for the really, really large attacks. Um, so this map is just meant to illustrate this. And uh, if you see, there's a legend down here. Uh, the entire country is shaded in because under TRIA, risk spreading is fairly even throughout all the states in the country, no matter where the attack happens. Now, in the event the TRIA expires and you do see a migration of terrorism risk to residual markets, uh, the financial burden of financing losses from a large terror attack would basically be confined in the state where the attack takes place. Now, again, there are variations in the extent to which this is true state by state. Uh, we picked New York here to illustrate this, uh, first of all, because New York is obviously a salient terror target, uh, but also because we did a case study of New York in the policy brief, and we showed that the residual market in New York is essentially backed directly by the state government because that's the way residual market institutions are set up there. Um, now, it's important to note that residual market institutions, guarantee funds, state funds, uh, all of these state-level institutions that would spread risk following a large attack do have some capacity to spread risk, but it's mostly limited to state borders because these are state institutions, whereas TRIA can rely on the power of the federal government to spread that risk more broadly. So what this means is that TRIA expiration uh, could create a trade-off between two different risk-sharing arrangements uh, if you see the kind of reaction we anticipate in the workers' comp market. So rather than having broad-based risk spreading across the entire country, you could see costs concentrate in the state where the attack happens but spread broadly throughout that state. And that might be beneficial uh, ex post, that is after we know where an attack happens, to taxpayers who are outside that state but it would involve a heavier economic burden on uh, policyholders and potentially taxpayers throughout the state where the attack happens. Um, so it's something that Congress should take into account because that may have negative impacts on resiliency if we think that state is already going to face economic stress due to terrorism. Yeah, over here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that differential sustained in the workers' comp market as well? That is, would the state provide less if the insurers fail mm -hmm. in other states? Let's see. So, so a really precise answer to this is going to vary state by state with institutions. <laughs> um, and I think there is an important distinction between New York and Illinois and California or the other states where we did case studies. Um, in in Illinois, for instance, and in states with assigned risk pools, um, there's essentially an insurance pool. Losses would be transferred to private insurance companies. And those might feed through to policyholders. Um, so state budgets wouldn't be directly on the hook. And in California, there's some ambiguity, but we think a guarantee fund, which I believe is what you're referencing in the New York case, uh, could come into play. And again, that would channel losses to policyholders throughout the state, but not to the state budget. And in New York, the residual market, or the market of last resort, is a quasi-governmental body known as the New York State Insurance Fund. And uh, NYSIF, the state insurance fund, is actually backed by the credit of the New York state budget. Um, so that's why in New York, uh, catastrophic losses, they exhausted the policyholder surplus, wouldn't go into the guarantee fund. The state fund in New York is actually excluded from the guarantee fund. We go directly to the state budget. And that might be the case in some other states uh, with state funds, uh, but you really need to go detailed state by state to figure that out. To the extent that guarantee funds are financed through premium tax offsets, which are the case in five additional state fund states, uh, the burden would also fall on the state budget. Uh, so we have details on that in the report. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's uh, that trade-off I just think is, is worthy of noting. Uh, under the TRIA program, losses in the workers' comp market would be spread across the country after a certain level through the either the policyholder surcharge or uh, federal uh, uh, or uh, payments by federal taxpayers. So you have a risk sharing across the, the country, which, you know, has some advantages and disadvantages. Uh, advantages being that, uh, you know, we're kind of all in this together as a country and we're contributing to, um, uh, to a loss in a particular area. Disadvantages uh, being that, uh, well, perhaps certain parts of the country really aren't at uh, much terrorism risk, and you know why should they be paying for other countries, that, other parts of the country that are? Um, whereas, um, uh, if TRIA expires, you'll really see, uh, uh, in in many cases, much more concentration of losses in the state in which the attack occurs. And uh, as Misha pointed out, that could uh, create a real burden at, at, in that state. At the same time, it's attempting to recover. Uh, the, the employers in that state are uh, going to be facing higher workers' comp uh, uh, charges, uh, uh, expenses, which could have, you know, put a downward pressure on employment. So, you know, that's the kind of uh, trade-off that uh, we think it's important for you all to uh, think about and consider as uh, as uh, move forward with the um, uh, with think uh, with uh, the bill. Okay, um, anything else? I've got a few more questions I can throw out to the, the panel um, in, in general, and anything else you want to, uh, to uh, ask? Uh, go ahead. Mm -hmm. um, could you guys comment on the effect of either the expiration of TRIA or a substantial raise in the uh, event threshold, what effect that would have on competitiveness and uh, consolidation? Yeah, Misha, do you want to? Handle that one. You want me to? Um, I'll start. Yeah, yeah, let me. I'll, I'll start on that one. So, uh, one of the proposals is in to increase the to increase the program trigger from the current 100 million to 500 million, which means that the program would not go into effect at all until uh, insured losses reached 500 million. Um, um, so that's a, that's a, a on the table as far as we understand from different proposals out there. So you have to think about uh, who would you know who would be affected by that. And uh, as it stands now, insurers are all different sizes. There's some really large ones, um, you know, that, that and, and smaller ones. The large ones have uh, deductibles. Their TRIA deductible can be two billion dollars, just enormously large amounts, uh, one billion, two billion dollars. And for them, the program trigger of uh, going from 100 to 500 really doesn't make a lot of difference. Um, they're on the hook for the first two, $2 billion dollars uh, uh, for their insured loss, no matter what. If the trigger is 100, 500, doesn't matter. Um, on the other hand, uh, there are uh, smaller insurers that can have a uh, tree deductible of uh, $20 million, $10 million. Um, and there's a lot, you know, there's far more small insurers than, than big insurers out there. So um, the small insurers really would be affected by this uh, increasing the program trigger to $500 million. Um, that could uh, discourage them from wanting to write in the business to write the business, which you know would raise issues about uh, competition in the uh, local markets and also uh, uh, being a factor that would uh, uh, trend to um, create a, a pressure toward uh, consolidation in the, in the industry. So that's uh, I think that's an important uh, set of concerns to think about as you um, consider whether uh, the program trigger should be um, increased. And Misha, do you want to add to that? No, I mean, I think that addressed it uh, really nicely. I, I will say that uh, workers' comp is a line of insurance where small companies, uh, these sort of specialty, potentially single-state monoline insurers, uh, do seem to play an important role uh, because they can specialize in particular industries, say healthcare facilities. Uh, we heard about somebody uh, who knows a company that specializes in courthouses, essentially. and uh, if you think there are benefits from that specialization, uh, then raising, rising the program trigger that makes it possible that these companies could exhaust their policy holder surplus in an attack that's not certified would really place them at a greater competitive disadvantage, perhaps accelerate their consolidation with larger insurers. Um, well, well, I thought it'd be useful uh, to think about, uh, uh, you know, the, the longer run TRIA. So we've re reauthorized TRIA twice in 2005-2007, considering reauthorizing it in 2014. Uh, so, you know, is this something we're going to be doing for, you know, the next three or four decades? Is this, uh, you know, a pattern we want to, um, uh, is this what we'll see? So the, the important question comes up then. Um, is the uh, terrorism risk, is it going to 
sustained? Are we going to be dealing with this situation for, for decades to come? And I you know, wanted to uh, ask Henry, uh, based on his work, and Rand has done a lot of work over the years. One of our uh, core competencies or expertise is uh, looking at terrorism risk and, and following that. And based on uh, you know, who you've talked to, others you've talked to at Rand, and your expertise, you know, what can we say about um, how this, uh, wh wh where this risk is going and whether we're in this situation for decades to come versus, uh, versus a shorter term? Thank you. We are often asked this question in different forms. That is either will terrorism end or how will terrorism end? And I think the, the short answer is not anytime soon, but it's worth peeling that back a little bit to, to understand, well, what, how has terrorism threat changed and, and where do we see it going right now? And I contrast that with what we were concerned about the terrorism threat right after September 11th. Right? There was grave concern that we were facing a new era where we could expect catastrophic attacks like this to happen more frequently, that the message of al-Qaeda was going to spread widely, uh, leading to radicalization that would have other types of attacks occurring more regularly in the U.S. And I think by most accounts, at least in the U.S., we have not seen that. Right? We've been fortunate that 9-11 type attacks haven't happened. Uh, and while there have been self-radicalized or individual attacks, not at the, at the frequency that people have been concerned. Yet there are trends that we're watching that, that keep us concerned about terrorism, and it's why the administration said terrorism remains at the top of the national security agenda. You know, it, uh, uh, some colleagues of ours published a report recently that counted how many operatives are working do we believe there exists or working around the world in, in terrorist organizations? How many terrorist organizations are there? Where are they operating? And all those trends are actually going in the wrong direction. They're going up. Uh, the messages, the, the, this message of al-Qaeda does seem to persist, and at least now, and I think we do have to be concerned about what will happen with terrorism in the near future. Now, you sort of, there's another balancing point. Uh, the more certainty you have in TRIA and sort of the longer, the less frequently you have to reconsider it, the more industry can plan. But we may learn more uh, about uh, how terrorism, trends terrorism take. So it is useful to reconsider it occasionally. Okay, well, I, I, let me ask one more. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, just to set, what, one, one thing we didn't do in our, our, our papers is really look at um, how much private reinsurance there is out there to step in if uh, TRIA expired. Um, you know, our analysis is much more the flavor of if take-up rate falls and, uh, and, um, and private insurers really insurance is not available, um, what would be the consequences? And that's what we've tried to do is outline those for workers' comp, the taxpayers, and then the uh, resilience part that uh, Henry looked at. But I just wanted to um, uh, turn it over to Misha for one second to uh, just summarize a little bit about, you know, what's out there as far as, um, you know, what we know and, and what is being said about the extent to which reinsurance could step in, private reinsurance could step in um, following um, if, if TRIA were to expire. Yeah, thanks, Lloyd. So. So right now, uh, with TRIA in place, there is reinsurance available for terrorism risks, both in property and workers' comp. Uh, based on surveys conducted by insurance brokers, limits per risk on those policies tend to be uh, estimates range from 2 to $8 billion. And TRIA, in contrast, uh, has this program in place that's set up to spread risks uh, up to $100 billion. So from the standpoint of an insurance company, uh, the backstop that TRIA provides is much more comprehensive than what's currently available in the reinsurance market. Now, the question that we haven't answered is what would happen to the reinsurance market in the event that TRIA expired? And presumably that might uh, induce greater demand for reinsurance, or at least make insurers more willing to pay for, for additional coverage. Um, we've heard some voices uh, in the reinsurance industry indicate uh, greater confidence in their ability to underwrite and uh, price conventional terrorism risks. Um, whether they're able to uh, price out those risks to, to the point where $100 billion of coverage, let's say, would be affordable to insurance companies uh, without damaging their underlying business, uh, that's really unclear. And we don't have a strong uh, quantitative evidence base 
uh, to predict what will happen there um, unless the law actually goes away, and then then we'll find out. Um, there's there's an important distinction though uh, with workers comp. Uh, you really need coverage not just for conventional terrorism, uh, but also for nuclear, biological, chemical, and radiological attacks. And the reinsurance industry, even those voices who have expressed an interest in bearing conventional risk, uh, really don't seem very interested in providing reinsurance for NBCR uh, because the uncertainty surrounding those attack modes is so much greater. Um, so, so we feel fairly comfortable sketching out a scenario for workers' comp where sufficient reinsurance is unavailable because workers' comp policies that cover terrorism uh, also have to cover NBCR losses. Um, but for conventional, uh, we it seems more likely that there would be reinsurance expansion, but we don't know how large that will be. That's good. And, you know, the important thing to think about is um, – uh, at what price would that coverage be available, and how would that trickle down into the co the cost of uh, terrorism coverage, and then in turn, how would that affect the take up for terrorism coverage? So you know you got to go through that chain uh, when you think about that. Yeah, when. Uh, this is a question for Misha. Misha, can you take it one step further with this slide here about the constant, uh, cost being concentrated in the state of the town? Um, play out a little bit about what that might uh, mean, because I can see where the cost would be concentrated. Well, it, I mean, it's, it's hard to say. No, this would all really depend on the magnitude of the attack. Um, you know, so the New York State Fund has uh, roughly $3 billion in policyholder surplus right now. So we need a pretty substantial attack entirely on their books uh, to actually reach, to, no, to, to effectively render them insolvent and reach into the state budget. Um, no, state... In the case of New York, um, I believe no. Mo most states have a limited ability to uh, run deficits. Um, so the states where losses claims would have to be paid out of the state budget uh, because the residual market has run out of capital, uh, that could actually lead to some substantial disruptions uh, in the short term. Uh, in a lot of the other states, though, you would see increases in uh, premiums, either through surcharges or just through through increases in the premiums themselves. Um, you know, we we can't really quantify uh, what that impact would be. For most businesses, workers' comp is a fairly small expense. Um, but you no, know, overall, workers' comp spending was about 1.4 percent of compensation uh, economy wide. Uh, for particular businesses, you know, basically those with more workplace risk, uh, you know, costs can be higher on the order of 10%. So if you had, say, you know, a 50% increase in workers' comp costs, that could damage rebuilding efforts um, and competitiveness potentially in those, in those more high-risk industries. Probably construction is the one that's most salient for the purposes of rebuilding. Great. Well, um, I think we've exhausted our time. Uh, very, uh, and uh, thank you for coming. And uh, please come up and ask us any questions. We're happy to have discussion on uh, any of these topics uh, moving forward. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.